Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling, Layton, working behind the scenes as always this week. Coming up on this week's episode, we'll be joined by Rick Kelly, Chief Product Officer at Fuel Cycle. They recently released a white paper called The Great Consumer Shift, but basically we're going to be talking to Rick all about private label products, how consumers are flocking to them now more than ever, and more importantly, how retailers and brands can take advantage of this consumer shift. In news, we'll look at Floor and Decor as they released their earnings this past week. We got a look inside one neighborhood center REIT in Regency this past week, and we'll look ahead to new redevelopments, not just there, but also at other REITs throughout the United States. A quick reminder that you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. All right, let's dive into the Floor and Decor earnings they released on Thursday, November 3rd. They're kind of our Favorite retailer taking up residence in former Kmarts everywhere, and they posted a slight beat of analyst consensus estimates, 70 cents per share versus 66 expected. And of course, we could talk about the raw numbers, but we're more interested in the direction they are taking. You know, it's said a lot of people pulling back on some of the durable goods. And you would think Floor and Decor would maybe see some negatives from that, but that's not the case at least in this quarter. For those who are maybe unfamiliar with the chain, they've enjoyed a compound annual growth rate of over 25% in terms of top-line sales in the past five years, and they've seen their store count balloon as they continue to take over large boxes that were abandoned by other retailers, hence the Kmart mention in the early going, but we've seen them in old Targets and maybe moved or vacated Walmarts or Sam's Clubs as well. However, more recently, from a real estate perspective, they've been building a lot more of their own locations or warehouses, as they call them, kind of those traditional larger square foot locations that tend to be around 100,000 square foot, give or take. And similar to at home, they don't feel the need to be in the most high traffic locations. They're content with B-class areas because they do see their stores as traffic drivers in themselves. You go there for a reason. You go there for flooring. They're not a company that's going to benefit a whole lot from neighboring traffic, larger neighboring shopping centers, because unlike at home, their selection includes almost entirely flooring, which is kind of as their name suggests, and they don't have the pseudo off-price feel like their big box brethren. Basically think of them as an LL flooring store, but on steroids and with more fixtures, generally bathroom fixtures. It's kind of the decor part of their business heading into this year. They continue to be bullish on growth plans, seeking further location openings that fill in the white space they visualize as a company. They've more than doubled their store count over the past five years. Currently, they have over 170 locations, but they see a white space of around 500 stores in the next 10 years, indicating obviously further growth plans as they stretch to reach that 500 mark. So where were they exactly this quarter? Well, as far as top line is concerned, their sales continued their growth rate seen over the past five years. Top line revenue for them increased 25.2% versus 2021's Q3. And as we reference the new stores they've built and opened up certainly helped this out, but so too did comps. They have been on a massive run of comp increases. 
They have nearly 14 consecutive years now of comp growth. This quarter was no exception. Comparable sales for them were up 11.6% year over year, outpacing inflation and also indicating that their product mix continues to resonate with both their pro and DIY customer bases. As we often do with retailers like Home Depot and Lowe's and Menards, we want to break down the pro versus DIY comps there. And for pro comps, they were slightly behind DIY, but still strong. They were up 7.4% year over year on the benefit of 29,000 new pro contracts signed in the quarter. However, when you look at the company as a whole, not on a comp basis, pro sales were actually strong in newly opened locations, at least compared to locations that had already existed. Pro sales, in fact, were so strong in these locations that they overcame being outstripped by DIY sales in comps to take over over 40% of the total sales share at Floor and Decor. So right now, 40.7% of overall sales in the third quarter went to pros versus the other 59.3% to their DIY customers. That is up and one of the highest marks they've had as a company. Now elsewhere, in terms of comparable sales, they talked about impacts from Hurricane Ian. Despite traffic to their Florida locations immediately after the storm, this took place obviously later in their quarter, they were forced to close several of their locations and Florida is one of their largest markets. In aggregate, the hurricane hindered September comps by 130 basis points. Going forward, they feel a little bit unable to project accurate impacts from those that might be seeking to renovate after the hurricane, those that might have those insurance checks in hand following Hurricane Ian wanting to redo their flooring. They can't say right now exactly how much impact that will have on a go-forward basis, but as I said, that did hinder comps just a little bit. Comps actually fell off towards the end of the quarter for the company as a whole. Just 9.6%, I say just 9.6%, but their sales were up 9.6% in September. And that came after their same store sales were up 12% in July and August. To date in the fourth quarter, comps for the company are floating around the 5% mark. That is behind year to date, obviously, and slightly lagging inflation in their product categories. And that's why they see in the fourth quarter as a whole, a little bit of pullback on comps growth for the next quarter. They expect full-year comps now to fall in between 9 to 10% growth, down from the 11.6% mark they saw in the third quarter. But their comp sales actually had been 11.6% for the duration of the first three quarters in aggregate of the 2022 fiscal year as well. So really, these third quarter sales increases seem to be more of a continuation of a very strong year for the organization, even if they do expect sales to tail off just a little bit. And by the by, while we're talking about comparable sales for floor and decor, e-commerce, which we still see is not being completely mature for them, their website still building out a little bit. They're still working on developing what they feel like is their full e-commerce potential. That actually grew by 31% year over year. And you see this with a lot of retailers that might not be completely mature in e-commerce over the last Oh, year or so, we've started to see comps moderate a little bit in e-commerce. That's not the case for Floor & Decor. E-commerce now accounts for 17.3% of their overall sales, which lags some retailers, but still better than the 16.4% at the same time last year. They credited their e-commerce team for not only increased conversion rates, 
but also increased basket size. Average e-com ticket growth outstripped company-wide ticket growth, in fact, on that front. So people adding more to their online baskets. Now, I mentioned it in the early going, but as far as their new store growth, they opened four new warehouses in the quarter, but they plan for 13 new openings in the fourth quarter. The 32 new stores, all told in 2022, if executed, would mark their highest growth in store count in company history in a single year. Additionally, if all goes as planned, they would have a presence in 36 total states. And that, if all goes as planned part, that is important because they were forecasting opening eight stores in the third quarter, but various forms of construction delays and then Hurricane Ian pushed four of the openings back. But they have, at least to this point in the fourth quarter, opened seven stores, including the four stores pushed back from the third quarter. One other aspect of Florin Decor's growth is smaller format design studios, which tend to be easier for them to open for a variety of reasons. A lot less inventory, or basically zero inventory in those particular locations. And so they're not as susceptible to huge delays, especially on the construction front because these stores are much smaller square footage, these design studios, and they tend to be in higher traffic areas. So not necessarily like their warehouses might be. We talked about them being in some B-class and even honestly some C-class retail neighborhoods. They tend to be these design centers in A-class neighborhoods and they have six after starting the year with just two most of them in their largest markets, including the DFW area, and they recently opened one in the Atlanta, Georgia metro area. Looking ahead at 2023, or at least their 2023 fiscal year, they see record growth again with 32 to 35 new warehouses in the pipeline, most of which set to open in the latter half of 2023. And leadership on the call to this point, they preached patience. They're really kind of unwilling to compromise on their company platform of finding cheaper than average retail real estate. And that's something that's proving a bit more difficult currently. And one of the reasons the opening forecasts have been pushed back into the later stages of 2023. As we've talked about in recent episodes, and especially on last week's episode, you see that CBRE report mentioning that there's just not a lot of new inventory out there. So a lot of the older inventory, a lot of the inventory that Florin Decor is used to snatching up and turning into these warehouses, that's not available as much anymore because real estate operators are redeveloping these larger boxes or other operators are snatching up these boxes. We mentioned at home and they've been on a breakneck growth pace as well over the last five years. So there is a lot more competition for these empty large boxes than what you saw even just a few years ago. And that's something that Florin Decor is having to deal with. And so they've got to be a little bit more judicious about where they jump in so they don't hamstring themselves with larger leases or larger purchases on the real estate. One thing that we were interested in as far as they were concerned, but they didn't really address on the call, that was the inventory. We know generally that spend is still happening in home improvement categories but that supply chain constraints have kept certain retailers from taking advantage, especially the specialty retailers. You look at Sherwin-Williams as an example. Earlier in the year, we documented their struggle to keep paint in stock despite massive demand, really backlogs of demand. And for Florin Decor, this doesn't appear to be as much of an issue. For one, they continue to plan these new locations that we talked about, and they've seen individual store sales rise at the same time. So we know that shortage of inventory is not hamstringing sales. It's not hamstringing the company. 
but also on a per-store basis, their inventory levels have risen about 10% year over year, which is remarkable considering the sheer number of locations they've opened in the last year. So you have to think their supply chain looking strong is not an issue for the company. As a company, total inventory on hand is up around 30% year over year, which is an encouraging sign that the industry-specific supply chain challenges are abating, and they're kind of allowing the stores in their network to bulk up again to meet this demand they see flowing in. But longer term, I do believe this sector is worth watching. We talked to various analysts about the reduction in customers seeking out durable goods. This is something that a lot of people have said. It seems like spending really being curtailed in terms of durable goods. And it will be interesting also to see how the housing market informs sales of companies like Floor & Decor, like LL Flooring, like Sherwin-Williams, companies that are really specific to certain aspects of home improvement. Supply chain issues notwithstanding, Sherwin-Williams, historically at least, has proven to be somewhat resistant to housing market fluctuations. We saw this in 2008, in fact, and we've seen it with minor downturns since then. But it remains to be seen the impact that rising interest rates will have on home improvement-specific retailers as the housing market adjusts. Will people continue to spend to improve their residences since they don't want to move into a new house with a substantially higher interest rate? Or, on the other hand, will people be hesitant to dig into savings to upgrade their residences if they know they won't move for a while? And our guest this week will talk a little bit about savings rates and what we can learn from that. But overall, you might also see an effect for pro customers if there's not a lot of new houses being built, or if you start to see new supply go down, that could also affect the pro customers for floor and decor. Lots of uncertainty here is what we're saying, but at least for now, the company does seem like it's all systems go with their expansion plans. And if there's any worry about the macro climate, at least within their company, certainly hasn't seemed to affect their vision going forward. But I do think it bears mention that history is littered with a lot of companies that kept expanding, kept expanding, kept expanding, despite the fact that macro factors really suggested maybe they should take a year or two off of this expansion. Those companies, in some cases, didn't work out all that well. But floor and decor, I think there's a lot of positive underlying signs there. They seem to be operationally extremely efficient, as we talked about on the supply chain front. And so, obviously, a sector to watch, but in particular, a company making a lot of noise in this sector. All right, well, coming up after this break, we'll be joined by Rick Kelly, the chief product officer at FuelCycle. He'll talk, obviously, about what FuelCycle does on the day-to-day, but more importantly, he'll talk about a study FuelCycle ran of over 1,500 respondents detailing what the 2022 consumer thinks about private label products, where private label growth is occurring, and how companies can evaluate the strength of their brand. And as he'll talk about private label brands, their brands too, and they can monitor strength just like the big boys. Even before the inflationary environment we've seen pick up over the last few years, customers were increasingly selecting private label brands in stores. Companies that were bullish in private label developments such as Target, Kroger, Albertsons, and even Amazon saw increased levels of private label penetration both prior to the pandemic and of course over the last two years. But now it seems as though that shift away from traditional CPG brands has accelerated as customers become more price conscious. And here to discuss 
What that means for retailers is Rick Kelly, Chief Product Officer at FuelCycle, who recently released a white paper called The Great Consumer Shift, which details this move towards store brands. Rick, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me today, Trent. First, I was wondering if you could give our listeners just a bit of a background on what FuelCycle does on the day-to-day for retail. Yeah, sounds good. I'll try and keep this really succinct. So FuelCycle is what we call the Market Research Cloud. It's a platform for a broad range of market research that utilized by enterprises to develop products, test pricing sensitivity, run ad campaigns, evaluate marketing content, and so on. So our clients for some of the leading enterprises, including those in the CPG and retail space, as well as a variety of other sectors, that need to make a wide range of business decisions using customer insights. All right, so we've got that background there. I'm kind of curious, as we start talking about this white paper, and you guys did a great job with the research, what was the inspiration originally behind kind of producing this report and doing this research on store brands? Yeah, so our inspiration is really understanding how consumer behavior is evolving all the time. So there's no surprise to anybody that there's been a lot of change over the past few years. You know, really over the past like 14, 15 years, we've had you know broad changes in the macroeconomic environment, technology, social environment. And so really just it came time to take a pulse on how consumer behavior is shifting in store and the types of brands and products that they're selecting. So it's really a reflection of the dynamic environment that we live in today and the need to kind of keep our finger on the pulse of how changes are happening in real time. Now, a lot of the original data in the report comes from a survey of over 1,500 respondents earlier this year. Just as we start to dig in, what were some of the high-level findings of the survey and kind of the high-level takeaways from what customers were saying? Yeah, so it's a great question. And I'm also privy to all the underlying data and not just what's in the white paper. So maybe a handful of key points is one is that there's kind of a broader trend and migration toward private label brands in general. So this is independent of an inflationary crisis or anything like that, that we've seen you know, really accelerate over the past few months. It's been a trend to adopt private label brands for consumers just more broadly. Now, the expectation is that uncertain economic environment is going to continue to accelerate that. Number two is really just around like the role that brand plays by category. So there's some products and goods that are relatively immune to private label brands. For instance, like alcohol brands, like they're going to kind of stand up a lot better against potential substitutes than something that's more in a kind of toothpaste category, for instance. So brand is dependent on the specific good that you're offering. And really, those are kind of the two big things I'm going to pull out there and say are clearly evident across the data that we have. Maybe one more thing that I'll throw in there is just that private label brands also, they can develop brand equity the same as any other kind of national brand can one call I'll share here is probably obvious. It's something like Kirkland Signature, where Kirkland Signature has developed a reputation as a brand for quality, or at least perceived quality, amongst consumers and has a strong following. So those private label brands, as they mature, are gaining similar levels of brand equity that national brands are having. We'll talk about some of those perceptions around those brands here in a little bit. I think that's a great call out in terms of Kirkland Signature. But the second point you mentioned, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into this because the survey kind of explored both share of wallet and preference for certain categories in terms of that store brand versus name brands. You mentioned toothpaste is potentially being one, you know, HBA categories, but where were customers most likely to have a preference for store brands and vice versa? Where were customers most likely, you mentioned alcohol, to have a preference for those non-store brands? 
Yeah. So where we saw the most, like the highest level of substitution was really around like healthcare products, just kind of broadly. So that what we're going to see is you're purchasing your private label ibuprofen, you know, something that's a clear substitute for something that has like a national brand on it is that, you know, healthcare products are going to be being the most frequently substituted, followed by personal care products. So it's personal care products that's going to be like toothpaste, deodorant, similar items, whereas other things are going to be a little more immune. So that's going to be like your alcohol, food, those types of things that have a little more resilience or where consumers are more likely to select a national brand than they are a private label brand. And I did want to circle back while we're talking about this. You mentioned alcohol as being one category where customers may be resistant to making the change. And looking at the data, 24% of wallet, which is the lowest share by any category, going to store brands there. Do you feel as though looking at this and maybe some other categories where customers aren't yet springing for those store brands, is this an area of opportunity for retailers or does it instead indicate that maybe customers are a bit more inflexible in those categories? It's a great question. Number one, I think predicting consumer behavior looking forward has been really challenging, but I would say that it's definitely an opportunity. And here's the reason why, is that over the past few years, we've seen the consumer savings rate decline dramatically. So the amount of money that consumers are saving up over time, it's now at a recent like low, which means that they're spending on the savings or they're spending at break-even levels. And that means that consumer behavior you know, that existed two years ago today is unsustainable relative to what it was like two years ago. And so there have to be changes happening. And so especially where brands can emphasize quality and similar attributes that people are going to value in a store brand is that there's a huge opportunity around categories that aren't substituted today, specifically around like alcohol or pet products and things like that. Obviously, some interesting things there and certainly something for retailers and store brand developers to look forward to. The survey also dove into main purchase drivers for store brands and name brands. Obviously, we talk a lot about price and you just mentioned in terms of the consumer saving rate, what we're seeing there. But besides price, what were some of the main drivers that influence customers to maybe prefer the store brand? And also, what can both retailers and brand developers take from some of these purchase drivers? Absolutely. So the number one indicator of whether somebody was going to purchase a name brand versus a store brand is around brand trust. So I think we'll go back to reference that Kirkland Signature example, where there's brand trust and people are confident that the product that they're purchasing is high quality, then they're going to easily substitute those store brands or private label brands for national brands. The other one is closely tied together. It really is perceived quality. And so that perceived quality is an important differentiator. And I think the main lesson and the takeaway from that is that for national brands is you have to find ways to continue to differentiate on attributes like trust, quality, than store brands. Because consumers perceive those as equal quality and just different price or different value, then they're going to easily substitute those, especially when there's a lot of economic pressure. So differentiation around trust, overall brand, and then quality is very, very key. And I think we saw some of this differentiation surrounding trust kind of bear out in other results from the survey. Honestly, one of the most interesting findings, I think maybe my favorite finding from the survey was regarding how household income shapes brand decisions. You know, on the surface, you would think that maybe a higher household income would lead to a stronger preference for name brands across the board. But 
that wasn't always the case according to the data. I remember non-alcoholic beverages, that's pretty much even across the board. What were the findings as far as how income shapes brand decisions as well? To be honest, I was also surprised by this, but I think it's been corroborated by data coming out of academia, specifically a handful of papers that we've worked through where you're seeing a real bifurcation and preference around store brands versus national brands. And a lot of it is income independent. So household income isn't always dictating whether people choose a national brand or they're choosing that store brand. There's things like super premium brands maintain their share, whereas more commoditized brands or products are going to be selected just based on consumer preference for private label or price, right? And so what I mean by that is that there's a real kind of bifurcation and loyalty toward a brand based on whether a product is kind of a super premium category or whether it's a more commoditized category. So we've talked a little bit about findings as it pertains to, you know, the current day, present day, 2022. And I know you were also asking both in the survey, and this is something that you probably experience on a day-to-day basis just in your work there at Fuel Cycle, but in terms of looking ahead, what's the indication from consumers regarding brand choice as we head into the next two, three years? Is this trend towards greater store brand penetration set to continue, or might we see some of those commoditized brands as you speak of kind of start to fight back a little bit? It's a great question, and many of them have to fight back. You know, but they don't always have the margin or the ability to compete at pricing, you know, compete on price the way that a store brand might be able to. And so there's going to be a real challenge, especially kind of heading into more uncertainty. We're officially not in a recession. We are in everybody's kind of waiting for a recession to be declared. But we also are combating you know, massive inflation and everything as well. So earlier this year, you know, we would have projected kind of a steady state where store brands, you know, kind of grow incrementally year over year. No wild swings or anything like that. I think, you know, current data has us projecting more uncertainty and as a result, more likely push into store brands as well. Now, historically, what you've seen when people shift to a store brand, especially for a prolonged period of time, is that those store brands tend to maintain their like consumption pattern over time, especially as the consumers become used to it. So there's a real threat, threat for these national brands is that when they lose share, even you know single percentage points during a recessionary time, that they are going to always have seeded that share. It's very difficult to gain it back from a private label brand in the future. We talk about all of this from the consumer perspective or maybe the brand perspective, but knowing these things, what are some things retailers could or should be doing to maybe take advantage of this consumer shift in preference, which you say might well be permanent going forward just in order to maybe maximize margins on the retail front? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. And actually, I will turn to a former professor of mine at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And I think the question is, what should a national brand do? Or you know, where should they invest? Typically in a recession, you see R&D expenditures cut. And so this is from Jan Benedict Stinkamp, who is at University of North Carolina. The proposal that he makes, along with, I think, some of his colleagues, is that, you know, they need to have a really wide assortment of brands and products at different price points, different sizes, different packaging. They need to have wide distribution. But also, and this is a direct quote, with the elevated risks of a recession, courageous corporate leaders planning for the long term might want to go against the general practice of cutting R&D expenditures during and instead invest more in R&D. That's the end of the quote. But as the economy bounces back, 
they're going to benefit from more assortment, kind of broader array of price points, packages, and solutions for consumers in the future. That's a great point there. And it kind of speaks to also some other spending patterns that you might see during recessionary periods of time. It seems that companies that don't cut back as much on spending are in a better position on the backside of the recession. Now, I do want to transition maybe from the CPG's point of view or commoditized brands point of view. One of the interesting things that I think Fuel Cycle does as I was getting into it is measuring brand health. What are some ways in which these brands can measure brand health versus maybe new or existing competition that might be out there? Yeah. So one of the things that we know is that traditional brand health, brand equity measurements, they tend to be very point in time and kind of isolated to a handful of points throughout the year. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't work well for business leaders who need to make decisions in near real time. The situation on the ground you know, is evolving rapidly. And so as a result, they need tracking practices that give them feedback on a, a monthly or weekly cadence rather than you know once or twice a year solution. So our hope is that by simplifying brand health tracking is that we can actually give business leaders the data and the diagnostic tools to make decisions on a faster cadence than if they're just looking at their brand equity you know, at a single point in time, a, a couple times a year. And that kind of speaks to this increasing movement towards flexibility that we're starting to see. And you mentioned, you know, if you're measuring on a weekly or, or monthly basis, or at least a more frequent basis than you were previously, obviously that gives businesses the power to maybe act there. So I'm curious, as far as that is concerned, what best practices you've seen as far as that flexibility in terms of action, whereas Previously, you'd see a lot of these companies, whether CPGs or retailers, be a little bit more rigid in their decision-making. Yeah, I mean, I think it just kind of speaks to the nature. It's a really dynamic environment in general. And so, you know, consumers are making rapid changes. And when rapid changes are happening, it's never been more important to keep your finger on the pulse of consumer decision-making and actually make more customer-led decisions in general. Now, I think what's interesting is that I'm speaking from a market research kind of customer insights lens is that in 2020, when COVID hit and everything changed dramatically, is market research spending went down by about 30% year over year, which is astonishing. And I think it's not a vote of confidence for the way that market research is delivered into the enterprise today is that you have to have faster, better decisions. And that means that you utilize technology to increase the scale and efficiency at which you can get customer feedback into the organization and make decisions with confidence. And really it's that transition to, you know, how do we get feedback into an organization and then act on it pretty quickly that makes all the difference. You can conduct a ton of research, but if you're not acting on it, there's no point in doing it. So business leaders need to get that confidence in uncertain times from customer insights and the traditional model of, you know, PowerPoint decks being shipped off to business and then you know, taking six-week cycles to turn around a project just doesn't work. So adopting agile measurement solutions and keeping track of consumer pulse in real time will give them the best opportunity to succeed in the future. All right, some great insights there. Well, once again, Rick, we thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to discuss this white paper here. And we're pleased to have you join the podcast to discuss a little bit about this shift towards private label brands. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We thank Rick for taking the time out of his schedule to join us, and he was someone that we really enjoyed being able to talk to. We talked to him quite a bit off the air, too, about some of Fuel Cycle's mechanisms there. Really, in today's retail climate in the whole, feedback, getting that feedback and employing that feedback is so important, and obviously it's something that he talked about them doing at Fuel Cycle, but he made a couple of really good points, which are basically tied into the fact that, look, companies can get feedback all they want, but unless they can employ the feedback and can be diligent in how they employ that feedback and flexible in how they employ that feedback, also have a very quick, agile turnaround, that's going to be the key for a lot of retailers going forward. And historically, it has been more difficult for larger retailers to make those quick changes. You're seeing the time to make changes and plan reduced for the bigger retailers. And I'm encouraged to see how the retail community really adjusts based around all of this real-time feedback in the future. Well, today in our Looking Ahead segment, Regency had an earnings call this week, and Regency is a REIT that owns about 80% neighborhood grocery-anchored centers in their portfolio, but they also have a lot of really nice A-class retail in their portfolio as well. And we could talk about their numbers, which were fairly solid, and we could talk about some of the other things coming out of that earnings call. But what really caught our attention is their dive into their redevelopments that are taking place. They've got a few different redevelopments on the earnings call that they dove into. Carytown Exchange in Richmond, Virginia. Also the Abbott in Boston, Massachusetts. And the reason this caught our eye is because more and more this is something that we are seeing from REITs. It's not about which developments they are doing. It's not about acquisition of land with the intent to build on the land. So much of what we're seeing right now from retail-centric REITs has to do with redevelopment. And I know this is something we talked over the summer after the ICSC conference in Las Vegas with representatives from Centennial. And this is something that Centennial as a company does very, very well, turning a lot of maybe older mall structures into these A-class shopping centers that retailers and services everywhere want to be in. But the reason I'm looking ahead to this type of story, at least from a retail perspective, is this. You know, we talked about retail inventory isn't increasing at the rate that many thought it would be. Construction costs are going up. Financing costs are going up. The fact that construction and financing costs are higher than in many cases they've ever been, but at least on the financing costs, financing costs are higher than they've been in many, many years. This is going to cause some REITs and some developers also to maybe rethink their strategy. And from a developer side of things, you know, a lot of these developers work also as contractors in these businesses, and they know firsthand that, hey, they can't get the spreads that they might be able to get. Even if you just look at a neighborhood shopping center, it doesn't make any sense anymore for a developer to buy a bunch of land, build a bunch of properties on the land, because construction costs are so high and rents haven't kept up with construction costs in many cases. We talked just last week about rents being up 2.5% year over year, which is good, and that's better than a lot of people forecast a couple of years ago, but it's not keeping up with the inflation in construction, and so you're seeing companies really take a second look at development and construction. Now, redevelopment has been much hotter than ground-up development lately, 
more and more REITs have talked about redevelopment for the next year. And we also know that A-class retail centers, look, they are crammed. Many of them have wait lists for potential tenants coming in. These are places where retailers want to be. So the reason I'm looking ahead, I think 2023 is going to be an exciting year in terms of some of these redevelopments throughout the country. I think you're going to start reading a lot less about things like dead malls, about things like dead shopping centers and dead areas, because companies are going to see these now as opportunities. They're going to see the redevelopment opportunity there, and maybe a redevelopment opportunity that if it's any cheaper than building from the ground up, they are going to jump out. Now, obviously, it's not the case with all malls. We see, of course, a handful of malls getting bulldozed to the ground and people just starting from the ground up. But you have to wonder if you're going to start to see less of that as construction costs rise and if companies can get anything out of existing boxes and existing structures, they will do so in order to try and maintain those spreads for investors in the future. And that's something that Regency Centers mentioned is they said, hey, look, on these redevelopments, we're getting 7 to 8% estimated stabilized yields, which is pretty good and much better than you would ever get if you were to buy a shopping center just sight unseen on the free market. So I think this is something that's going to be intriguing because you're going to see a lot more A-class retail kind of entering into the discussion. How will retailers adjust to this and how do retailers that maybe don't typically fit into that A-class retail scheme, how will they adjust maybe in terms of their concepts going forward? Lots of questions though to be answered for the 2023 calendar year, at least as far as retailers are concerned for some of these shopping centers and different mall spaces. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus Podcast. We'll cut it a little bit shorter than usual this week because I'm recording from a hotel in Tucson, Arizona, and I think probably those staying in the hotel are tired of hearing me talk. You might be tired of hearing me talk as well. So we'll cut out for this week, but coming up next week, we're scheduled to be joined by an expert in terms of imports and bringing international products to the United States as it pertains to retailers, the current scope of supply chain in terms of getting things from overseas, and what retailers are currently seeing as far as some challenges for imports and the ways in which retailers are working around those challenges. Again, all that scheduled for seven days from now. I hope you have a great week and thank you very much for listening. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.